Welcome to Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers with your host, Elaine Rasmussen. The Social Impact Now podcast lifts up the work of social change makers like you who are powering a positive impact and equity in our communities. It's time for you and your host, Elaine Rasmussen, to drive Social Impact Now. Welcome to Social Impact Now podcast with your host, Elaine Rasmussen. My name is Stephanie Lewis, and I will be this episode's host as Elaine has the day off. I'm especially proud to have Ingrid Benedict as our guest today. Ingrid is the director of the Daphne Foundation. She's also the co-founder and co-chair of the New Blacks in Philanthropy, as well as a RSF social finance fellow, consultant, and thought leader. I'm pretty sure I've left out a couple other hats that you wear, but she literally does everything. We are happy to have you on the show. How are you today? I'm doing well, and I'm glad to be here with you and to talk about this work. And I appreciate what you all are doing to really resource social change and um, social justice work. And I'm glad to be here. So we're just going to dive right in. Considering that a bulk of your career has been in philanthropy, I want to start off real quick for our listeners who are not familiar with the Daphne Foundation. Can you please summarize your organization and its mission and your role? So the Daphne Foundation is a New York-based family foundation. And I've been the director working with them now for about four years. When I first started, actually, I mean, this is an interesting question for us. I know it feels like a pretty sort of simple intro question, but for us, it's pretty interesting because we just completed a strategic planning process that took about about 18 months to 24 months. And the outcome of that process was a new vision and a mission statement. The foundation's been around for about 22 years. Um, so this was significant for us to really evaluate and assess you know, we're a modestly small foundation trying to influence ending discrimination and poverty and um, violence in one of the biggest cities in the U.S. and trying to figure out how to do that strategically. So the assessment actually resulted in us really revising and changing our mission and vision and also the way in which we do our work. So that was pretty significant. Having that for those who have never been a part of a strategic planning process, it can be painful at some times, but it can yield some really great results. So really mm-hmm. quickly, What was your mission and vision before the strategic plan? And then talk about what it is now. And then also talk a little bit about the situations or the conversations that actually spurred or stimulated this conversation about saying that you guys needed to pivot Mm -hmm. um, what you guys were doing and your focus in the organizations that you support. Great question. So for about 20 plus years, the foundations had the mission to fund solutions that were really disrupting and, uh, you know, really finding an end towards poverty. The primary grant-making strategy, which we still have kept, which is to fund groups with general operating support. And you're right in the sense that strategic planning is often seen as something that's really time-consuming and and somewhat painful. But I think as funders, it's really critical for us to assess uh, not only the communities that we're partnering with, to really ask them if if we're good partners and how you can be a better partner, right? To always actually strive to understand how the uh, landscape, both for their work, but also for philanthropy is currently shifting. So to me, it feels irresponsible for um, foundations to not really assess how their grantee partners are working with them and also the uh, feedback that they offer. So we spoke with grantees. We also spoke with our funder partners and tried to get a sense of the changing landscape here. And then we also tried to take a look at, you know, what was the state of poverty in the city? So you have this growing divide of people that have lived here almost 40 years who can't afford to stay in the city that they've lived from for most all of their lives. You have apartments that were maybe $700 <laughs> just six years ago that are now about $2,000. The 
economic um, inequality in the city keeps growing and its relationship to violence and discrimination. And so the process was actually really, really helpful because what it did for the foundation was that it actually got the foundation to really zone in on where we could have the most impact. And I think one of the biggest changes that the foundation did was that so in the 20 years before, it really funded organizations that were doing service delivery, community development, and groups that were engaged in um, systems change. And through the process, one of the things that we learned is that there's less and less resources for organizations that do systems change and institutional change. And it's often in those efforts that you can impact thousands, right? You know, you pass a new uh, minimum wage, and that impacts thousands of people. But there's less and less resources for groups who do that type of work, yet the results of that work can impact the masses. So one of the changes that the foundation did was to really invest in organizations that are working with community residents who are directly affected by poverty and violence and discrimination to develop the solutions that would make this a more fair and just city. And the underlying value that the foundations always had is that people that are directly affected by these different systems are often the farthest away from the levers of power to change them. And it's through community engagement, community organizing, that they not only share with us what's happening, because they're often the most knowledgeable about the housing crisis, the police crisis. They're most uh, knowledgeable and they're often the farthest away. And so the investment, the grant making investment strategy is to support those organizations to be able to do that, the work that they do. So that was a pretty significant shift. We find that service delivery and community development are critical strategies. But as a small foundation, we really try to um, identify where we, could we have the most impact. And to identify that place, we needed to speak with all of the partners that we could. So the process actually resulted in another really big thing that I just want to say really quickly is that for 20 plus years, the foundation's always done general operating support, which is really your core operating support for any nonprofit, but any company, right, needs to have the capital to be able to operate and do its mission every day. And those resources are often less and less. So we have nonprofit community-based organizations taking on some of the biggest challenges in the city, but yet not having the financial security to be able to, to meet their mission, right? So this is, this is just a sort of continual problem in philanthropy. And one of the biggest changes, uh, in addition to the mission change and the changing the um, grant-making strategy, <clears throat> we also went from yearly general support grants to five-year um, general support commitments. Wow. And we wanted grantee partners to know that we wanted to really shift our orientation to say, look, we trust and support your um, vision and your expertise. And we want to be the type of funder that recognizes that they have to engage in managing a lot of risk, right? I mean, they're constantly having one of the things that we've seen here, in, and I imagine that um, you've seen is that there is an increased need, the volume of need that these organizations have had to deal with the shifting political climate. For some of them, it's doubled and tripled, right? So they have this huge growing volume, but yet they have less and less resources to do the work. Correct. Um, and so we wanted to really partner with them deeply, so we shifted to these five-year general support grants. One of the things I hope that all foundations would do, actually, would be to shift to these longer-term investments. Right. So organizations know that you know, that you're invested in their work and that 
that you're there with them for five years and shifting the relationship from this sort of yearly asking for the world but off investing in a one-year grant. So that feels like a significant shift that I just wanted to um, lift up. That was also the result of our planning process. There was, in your response, there were so many different like gems that we could, we would definitely have to schedule a, a second interview so we can really unearth a lot of the things that you said in your comment. Um, but you were talking about the Daphne Foundation making this significant shift. And I'm noticing that, like you said, we're noticing that also in the philanthropic community in Minnesota, where where a lot more funders are undergoing these strategic planning processes mm -hmm. and really mm -hmm. shifting away from what their initial mission to getting more involved in community and acting mm -hmm. more boldly. And so I know you're doing that to create five-year longer-term operating support grants mm -hmm. to your grantees, but are you seeing that in New York, you know, with your other foundations or family offices, are they making those same shifts to really address the needs of grantees as well as the needs of the community? And do you also see that as a response to our current political climate? That's like the, the core question here, right? I mean, I, to be honest with you, I'm really glad that foundations in Minnesota are acting more um, boldly. And and yet I, I don't I don't see it here. And I think it's something that we need to do more of. I think there's a lot of, I don't know, sort of fear and uh, risk management and a little bit of paralysis that happens in philanthropy. I think it's, it's a system and an institution in itself that's really difficult to change. But the reason, and, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic, because I'm actually quite hopeful when I look at the different communities and community organiza organizations that are out there fighting every day, actually. I mean, ultimately, I guess what I wanted to share is that I don't, really see it. I think that what's required of philanthropy right now is to actually match the courage and the boldness that we see with communities across the country, really standing up for what's fair and what's just and for the inclusive society and the sort of multiracial democracy that we talk about. I mean, this is the time, I think, for philanthropy to invest more than what they've been investing. The 5% just isn't enough in terms right. of really the type of communities that we're in, that we're all envisioning. As I shared, my vantage point is looking at organizations that have an increased need and uh, volume and are being asked to do huge amounts of work with less and less support and less resources. You know, one move that I've seen a lot of foundations do, and I imagine you all have seen this in uh, Minnesota, is that a lot of foundations have created these uh, rapid response funds, right? Because there's a lot of urgent need Right. Around, you know, and, and we see it. We see um, activists being um, targeted, being um, silenced for the work that they're doing. And rapid response funds are critical. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really glad to see that those those resources are are flowing. And at the same time, we need them in addition to really supporting and building the infrastructure of community organizations and their key partners to do this work for the long haul. I mean, if, if we've learned anything over the last you know few years of a political shift and political climate that we need to really build infrastructure and leadership that's long lasting. And to do that, we need the, a deeper type of investment. So I wish I could be more optimistic. I mean, <laughs> I see foundations, I see some foundations really stepping forward with a lot of hope and courage and increasing the resources that they're putting out there. But I also see foundations shifting from general operating to program support. And that to me is, is that we're in the moment where we need to just resource these organizations and support them 
to really exceed their goals, right? I see my role as a funder is to support the conditions in which they meet their goals and programmatic support just often doesn't help them do that. And I see a move towards that, an increased move. And, and I think that we're, you know, it's sort of misplaced in the moment that we're in. Because you were talking about being bold and, you know, how you see some more funders really stepping out there and really supporting the work of their grantees in the communities in which they serve. But to that point, when you look at the philanthropic landscape, not only in New York, but across the nation, I think you touched on it, but how is it being activated to protect and build political power in low income neighborhoods and communities of color? What unconventional or unique relationships are being built or cultivated? or alliances are being formed to do this work? I see a lot of really positive motion. I mean, I one thing I think I want to, when I think of philanthropy at large, I think of not just institutional philanthropy. I mean, I think of the individuals have always been the engine of giving. That's sort of the core thing, the core definition of philanthropy. So individuals in communities directly supporting the groups that are in their neighborhood. I mean, that continues to happen. And then we have, which which also is continuing to grow, because I think my sense is, is that there's been waves and waves of people really connected to the, the current political climate and the social, the various social movements that are in active formation, right? And that are engaging thousands and millions of people. So I think that there's this newly sort of reactivated um, base of people that we can see. And there's there's donors and individuals that are in those communities that are supporting that work. So I want to just recognize that because that's always been the biggest part of the um, philanthropic sector of giving, people who give their money and their time. And I think If anything, I always encourage folks to remember that that's something that we can all do and that we should all do. I think I see a lot of really interesting collaborations and uh, partnerships. There's the Solidaire Network, which I'm on the uh, steering committee of, is a national network of donors of wealth who invest in and, you know, support social movement infrastructure. Mm. And they do that in a a range of ways. One is definitely supporting uh, rapid response funds, but there's another, there's another strategy that they have, which is really an aligned giving strategy, which is to really partner with movement communities and invest in them over a longer term. And right now looking to invest in, you know, you have the uh, Movement for Black Lives, you have the um, Immigrant Youth um, Justice Movement, we have the uh, Women's Movement, we have, I mean, we're living in an extraordinary time. I mean, it, you know, if, if right. you would have to actively not see <laughs> the and try to ignore the an amount of social uh, movements that are really pushing for a better future for all of us. Um, and I think that's really powerful. And there's a lot of donor communities that are really working in partnership. Another really interesting model is is the Third Wave Fund, which really looks to support and fund feminist activists that are often at the front lines of things before they become um, national news. Right. Um, and um, resourcing that that work as well. So there's a lot of really powerful partnerships that I think are that are forming, and I think. Just to say to my previous point, my hope is to move more than half of philanthropy to really see that this is the moment for us as institutions to also really live our full mission, right? And to look at where endowments are being um, invested. Does that align with the mission and the values of a foundation? That too feels important. And it also feels important to not only invest in organizations and offer grant capital, but there's other types of capital, right? That 
organizations need to really do their work. And so, you know, that's my hope. And I and I want us to get in that direction. So I think that's probably why I sound pessimistic because <laughs> I want I want philanthropy to be as large of a movement that we can see all around it. Um, right. And, and to have that type of momentum. We have about 10 more minutes left. You talked about philanthropy and the landscape, but I want to really talk more about you. And again, I do believe that this is we can have a series of interviews along these topics, as well as your experience in uh, philanthropy and as a funder. But I want to talk about you. You have an extensive uh, resume and you're here representing a family foundation or a family office, and you're doing some really cool work at New York Blacks and Philanthropy. Tell me a little bit more about yourself like how did you get to this place what situations or what aha moments that you had that you realized the best kind of activism to do is through philanthropy tell yeah. us a little bit more about that so we know exactly so I know I, so I know what goals to achieve <laughs> later on in life <laughs> well you know to be honest with you like I never thought I would be where I'm at you know I mean I never set out to say I want to be the director of the family foundation but it's been a really good journey here and I I manage the foundation part-time and I and I have a consulting practice in addition to that so I feel like I've I get to see different types of organizations but you know to be quite honest with you I started you know, in this work as a, as a community organizer and as a youth organizer at that. Um, and I started, I think, just to go to your point, the first thing I thought of when you said aha moment is, you know, I had an aha moment when I was a community organizer working uh, with an organization in the Bay Area um, in California. And I had an aha moment when I realized, you know, we were trying to have results around truancy and around, you know, really supporting a more community-oriented school environment. And I had an aha moment when I, when I realized that I think there was, a, there was a victory where there, a school nurse, I mean, that was the campaign, right? Uh, to have a school nurse and a school nurse was one. And I know that sounds like a basic need that every school should have a school nurse, but some schools don't. And really getting to meet her on one of her first days and she came in and there was no money for resources for her. Wow. And it was a major disconnect for me. I mean, it, it, you know, and I, I think I think I may have taken, you know, her and we went to like Rite Aid or Thrifty or something. And, you know, she used um, her own money to buy Band-Aids and stuff to wipe and all of that. And I remember just sitting in the car thinking, I know there has to be a better way for us to be doing what we're trying to do. And quite frankly, I think I was always that person who was always afraid to talk about money. I mean, I, you know, I think all of us have some, you know, kind of root and, you know, around it and also are never really exposed to how to have really open and honest conversations about money. Right. And, you know, I came to the U.S. when I was six, so I, I'm a black immigrant family and we, we struggled around money. So I never had these really positive <laughs> thoughts or experiences about money. And a friend of mine had told me to really do the things that scare us actually because and to do those things that make us feel fearful because there's something on the other side and I think that was one of the best advice that I got because from that I said I'm really I don't understand how the social sector is being financed and I want to figure it out oh good and and then so I stepped into that world and have been a fundraiser and I think being a fundraiser and actually knowing how to raise money also helped me be, become a, a decent grant maker to be honest with you because I think you need to know the full cycle of how resources come in right and how they're spent and then you know what i mean and so but the that was an aha moment for me which began my work into trying to understand what's the financing behind all of this like who's making the money decisions 
you know, right. and, uh, and myself wanting a little bit more clarity, confidence and access to power right. and, and influence. And then realizing that oftentimes you have to be quite honest. And I know this is a you know difficult conversation, but we have rooms of folks that don't look like people that are, that the organizations are, are working with. So you have rooms of entirely, you know, white, white men usually um, making decisions about communities of color and the resources that they need. And so I think, you know, my hope is to move to a more sort of, you know, community or oriented type of way of doing philanthropy and really sharing the power around these decisions that we make and engaging communities in that process. And I have a lot more to learn. I mean, I'm, I'm on this journey, but I have a lot more to learn. And, but I do think that we, and I say we broadly as communities of color, communities that are often excluded from conversations right. around uh, resources that we actually need to draw up and put a make space for ourselves at the table <laughs> you know exactly like, like, there's this is one of the most fundamental things that keeps happening and, and we need to change that so that was you know my drive was to just uh, understand and it helped me because I don't really have the fear anymore I could talk about money all day long <laughs> <laughs> if anybody wants to talk but nobody does still <laughs> but I think it's important because to me we're trying to support not just organizations building political power to be able to bring to life the vision that they have, but we need to have the economic power to actually make that, that exactly. political power stand. So we need to have both a resource strategy that includes a large um, social justice vision about how are we financing our work and how do we think that our communities should be financed and so that's what's drawn me but it's been an interesting journey so i appreciate you asking about that because i know in your in your comments you were talking about being in those rooms i've experienced being in those rooms too where i was i had to integrate the entire room um and then and it happens a lot but also in philanthropy, you have people with, you know, that looks the same, sound the same, but also with shared experiences, especially here in Minnesota. I have a limited understanding, but a lot of people in philanthropy in Minnesota, that's where they started their career. So you started your starting point is in a community community organizer role, which really informs the work that you do as a funder, whereas a lot of other people, they're starting as a grants assistant and they, they just move up the ranks where they don't have that understanding what communities actually need. They're just, they're grantees, they're part of a portfolio. And I think yeah. if for anybody who is interested in philanthropy, I think they need to take that unconventional route and work as a community organizer, work in AmeriCorps, work in these different sectors. So when they get to the point where they are a program officer, it can really help them see, they can look at it through an equity lens. And I think that's something that yeah. is missing in philanthropy, yeah. even the way the applications are set up, the fact that smaller women-led or person mm -hmm. of color-led nonprofits, how they are don't receive that operational support, that long-term operational support that they need, mm -hmm. you know, in order to remain competitive mm -hmm. and continue servicing their clients. So I think that is really, really important and hopefully you continue to screen that from the mountaintops and encourage the younger people to have these different experiences if they're interested in a career in philanthropy and we are running out of time but there's one more question that I want mm -hmm. to ask you and where would you like to see philanthropy in 10 years what is your hope hmm. wow that's such an unfair question to say quickly <laughs> um, I mean I guess you know there's a couple things that I guess I would lift up one is I that I hope that in 10 years that more foundations have moved towards community controlled and community influenced decision making in their in their grant making 
I think there's a lot of different models around participatory grant making that actually engages communities to think about what type of investments would they want to make as people living in those communities, as people living with and dealing with different types of poverty and uh, marginalization. So I think my hope is that there's just more and more philanthropy that moves towards the direction of really seeing communities as decision makers and as key partners, just not the recipient of funds, right? They should be, there should be, and there's a lot of great models to look at across, across the country. And, you know, and I think the other one is that, you know, I, I think that we're, there's a growing movement of community groups and local entities and cooperatives and just folks that are really looking to build an alternative economy that's really grounded in community values around fairness and equity right. and and uh, social inclusion. I, you know, this is just Ingrid, this isn't the Daphne Foundation, <laughs> but I'm really excited about the growth of that. The in New York City alone in the last 10 years, we've seen so many different types of cooperative models that are from bakeries to cleaning and construction and technology. And there's something about supporting these different types of, of enterprises that are also both m matching their values with their business model and also offering services that people need. I guess I would hope that philanthropy would really see the um, value in really investing in these types of of entities and not just with grant capital, right? But with all the different types of and forms of capital that, that uh, companies need to be successful. And so those are just two things that I would say, but I have probably like a list of 25, <laughs> but I'll, those are, you know, those are two that I would say. And, and then I guess just the last thing, cause then I wouldn't feel uh, right. Is that, you know, I hope that, you know, to your previous point that, you know, that we, that foundations also just look at their own decision-making and really think about their board structures and their board of trustees um, structures about who's actually, who has access to those spaces and thinking about community members that if you're investing in a particular community, there should be community members from that community on that board. Right. And I think that it's not just, it's about recognizing a lived experience that, that is also quite valuable in the, in the process of making decisions. So those are three things I think I would lift up. Just know I got like 25 <laughs> more, but, uh, but those are what I would say for now. Uh, one of our staff, Courtney, she works with cooperatives and she was over here doing a happy dance when you were talking about cooperative models, because that's something that holds a sweet spot in her heart. So definitely oh, yeah. we would love to have that conversation for the rest of the 22 other things that you would like to see <laughs> for, for, for philanthropy. But we are out of time. Thank you so much, Ingrid Benedict of the Daphne Foundation for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for hanging out with us on a Social Impact Now podcast. Have a great day. Thank you. You can check out previous episodes of Social Impact Now at www.socialimpactnow.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at SISG. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a five-star rating 